message that like several of the ones we have broached in this study is controversial in our day. It is tragedy that it would be controversial among those who profess to be Christ's children. We're not surprised when the world says, oh, we don't like your word. We don't like the strictures that are in it. We don't like the straitjacket and the, the distinguishing uh, commands that it puts upon us, uh, those things that make people different. We don't like all that. And that's because we are all children of the French Revolution. We have bought into uh, the radical egalitarianism that our culture has been drinking like uh, a river for several decades now. And we, ha we have lost the clear distinctions that Scripture bring to us. And we need to understand that it is not a wicked patriarchal mindset that imposes itself upon the Word of God and therefore strangles and oppresses people but it is a false egalitarianism that is imposed upon the Word of God that destroys the order that God has naturally given to it. And brethren, I do trust sometime in the future to take some of these things on in a more polemic way. It's not been my purpose to try to answer every question that arises out of these as we go through this. <coughs> I have attempted more simply to introdu introduce us to the the things that come naturally from the text um, in only addressing some of the more obvious arguments. There are many. But uh, we come again to this text. And the first thing we want to ask ourselves to put us uh, into the context which these things were written is how are God's beloved and redeemed children to live in response to a hostile world? How should those who love Christ react to those who shamefully and wickedly treat them? Peter gives us the example. He says in chapter 2, For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your fault, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called because, and this, that's the linchpin, that verse is, I mean, that word is absolutely crucial, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Brethren, the Christian life in a sin-cursed world is going to be one like Christ's, and that will entail suffering. It will mean that those who walk according <clears throat> to heaven's direction will come directly into the sights of those who hate God and they will be oppressed by the culture around them. The Lord Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. How could that be said for the Son of God who, except for those awful hours upon the cross, knew nothing but an unbroken fellowship with his Father. How could it be anything but a joyful time? Because he lived daily among sinful souls. And those who hated 
the truth. He walked as a minority, if I can say it that way, because the world around him was going in a different direction, and he was walking according to his Father's will. And brethren, it can be no different for those who are in union with him. If, by the regenerating power of the Spirit, we have been brought into everlasting life and eternal union with the Lord Jesus Christ, our feet cannot but walk in the paths in which our beloved Master Himself walked. It is impossible if we are walking according to the Spirit. Now, if we take the line of least resistance, if we follow the flesh, it is likely that we won't have many conflicts with people. We'll try to dodge those conflicts. We'll do everything we can. We'll even try to be nice Christians so that everyone will just like us. Now, I'm not asking us to be obnoxious. I'm not asking us to be uh, hateful toward people. I'm, I'm not saying that, that we should live wagging our fingers in people's faces. This is not what I'm saying. But I am saying that a wholehearted obedience to the things of the Word of God are going to navigate our paths directly to a head-on collision with this world. You don't have to go looking for it. You don't have to go out with a chip on your shoulder and just, you know, waiting to have a, a punch-out with the world. Get in the path Take up the cross of Jesus Christ and obey Him with all of your heart and your soul and it will come to you. And this is what Peter's addressing. Over and over and over he uses the word conversation in his, his epistle uh, which means lifestyle, your behavior. Your behavior, your behavior, your behavior, your life. Christianity is alive because we're alive in the living Christ. Therefore, <clears throat> because Christ also hath suffered for us, and it doesn't simply mean upon the cross, it means His day-to-day -day living. Brethren, He had to suffer when Peter, that He loved, after Christ had announced, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. After three days, I'm going to rise again. Peter, instead of saying, Hallelujah. This is the outworking of the eternal purpose of God. Becomes a Satan to Christ. And says, No, not so, Lord. May it never be. And what may have sounded like words of love for Christ, to Peter's ears, he was standing in direct opposition to the eternal purpose of God. Whether he was hearing Satan and doing these things, or whether Christ was simply calling him a Satan because he resists the things of God, either way, the point is the same. Jesus said, you don't savor 
the things of God. If you understood really what was going on here, Peter, you wouldn't be defying the purpose of God. It may be well meant, but it stands directly opposed to God's eternal purpose. So Christ suffered because he did the Father's will every day in some form or fashion. Even if there were days when there were no direct attacks upon him as such, he had to live constantly with the effects of a fallen world in his beloved disciples when he grew up in the family in which the Lord placed him, in which his father placed him. To be the perfect son of God living under sinful parents, blessed as they were, had to have been a great deal to endure. Son, why have you done this to us? Don't you know? I must be about my father's business. What was he saying? Don't you understand? Don't you understand who I am? I have a sense of what God has sent me to do. And he submitted himself to them. So, Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. In Christ Jesus, brethren, we have heaven's example of how we are to live, especially in the face of the world's disapproval, the world's frowns, the world's opposition, even the world's violence. Christ Jesus is held before us because he is the superlative example of how God's people are to endure the oppression of a hostile culture. Peter is not simply giving us kind of a Christian pat on the back here. Christians say, Peter is saying, Christian, the example has been set before you. You're going to walk a path of suffering. And the only way to live in this world, swimming upstream all the way to the celestial city, is by committing yourself to him who judgeth righteously, just like Christ. A day to day, casting yourself upon the loving Father who has set your path under the cross. Now with that in mind, he then addresses the Lord's peculiar people as they relate to kings and governors and masters. In 
and he extends this into the home life of men and women. In this passage, then, Peter gives to women holy counsel regarding the difficult challenge of living with a man who rejects the Word of God. Brethren, my heart is very tender to these things. It is a very, for me anyway, excruciatingly painful situation to sit before a woman who is crying her eyes out because of the man to whom she is married knowing that men are to encourage and guide their wives to see them spewing in in anger or to to see them crying their hearts out because they live with men who do not walk according to the word of god An extremely painful thing it is suffering and peter is giving direction on how sisters married to men who do not obey the Word of God are to be strong in Christ and submit themselves. And he gives them a glorious agenda from heaven for winning them to Christ. So we return to this passage where we have been considering three specific thoughts. We've broken up verses 1 through 7 under these heads, the wife's responsibility of submission, secondly, the wife's difficult trial in submission, and thirdly, the wife's beauty in submission. So far, we have only considered the wife's responsibility of submission. I do take the liberty of not uh, pressing these as strict expositions and spend a little more time taking the heads that are here and uh, working them out a little bit more. And tonight, we come to, to the second head the wife's difficult trial in submission. Now, we've spent thus far time considering the wife's responsibility of submission. If you have not heard those uh, studies, I encourage you to get them and work through them. In them, uh, we attempted to describe what submission is and what it is not, according to God's infallible word. won't go over all of those things this evening. We simply take it up at this point that it is a great, spirit-wrought, holy strength. Submission is a great, spirit-wrought, holy strength. Now, we would consider these things this evening as we take this this uh, heading, the wife's difficult trial, 
The first is her problem. The second is her goal. And thirdly is her holy method. Her problem, her goal, and her holy method. <coughs> when we come to verse 1, <clears throat> Peter writes, Likewise, in the same manner, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. As we've been pointing out the last few weeks, Peter has given us a context. We've looked at that a little bit in our introduction this evening. But as he addresses the Lord's people as they face a hostile culture, an oppressive culture, he's encouraging them in how to walk as the Lord's dear children. What do you do when you're the oppressed minority? You walk like Christ, you commit yourself to the Holy Father in heaven, bearing your cross and enduring the suffering. And that's the context here. Brethren, it is suffering for a woman to live with a man who will not walk according to the Word of God. When a woman has been born of God's Spirit, and clearly this is the women he's addressing, because as we will see in the weeks ahead, he speaks here in verse 4 of the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible. That part of us <clears throat> that is the recipient of the glorious grace of God, that part of us that is moved upon by the Holy Spirit bringing us into life, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts that desire the things of Christ. There's a hunger for goodness and purity that was never there before. <clears throat> oh, there might have been a, a desire to be good and nice according to the world standard. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a holy hunger type of thing that Christ said uh, meant when he said, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. A woman that's been born of God's Spirit hungers for Christ. She hungers for the Word of God. She hungers for fellowship because that's how she's been made. And to live with a man who is a stranger to those things causes her to suffer. The one whom she is most intimate with in all the world, she cannot share the deepest and most precious union. While they may share their bodies, they can never share their hearts. That's a cause of suffering. <clears throat> so, 
Peter is calling wives here to suffer. Do you realize that? Do you see that that's what he's saying? He's directly connecting this to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came into this world in the power of the Holy Ghost and his life was one of suffering as he did what the Father called him to do. And that's exactly what Peter's doing here. He's calling these precious women to submit themselves to these hardened and wicked men. And you would think, now what loving Father in heaven would inspire one of his mouthpieces to call a fragile and a delicate woman to submit herself to someone who will likely bruise her and crush her, her emotions over and over and over if he's not physically abusive. One who intends to display the magnificent saving grace of Jesus Christ. This is what Peter is talking about. So what is the woman's problem here? It says that if any obey not the word. If any obey not the word. The words translated, if any obey not the word, are from the Greek, which means to refuse to be persuaded. The spiritual donkey, what we're talking about here. <clears throat> to refuse to believe. In fact, it's, it's translated in uh, other parts of the New Testament. They believe not. But its primary emphasis is disobedience. Resisting in the light of information. It is not an entirely ignorant resistance to the things of God. And what I mean by that is, of course, in one sense, all lost men, because of the hardness and, and, and blackness of their hearts, are ignorant of the experience of God illuminating their minds and their hearts. But the truth of God has fallen on the ears of these men. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word is used for several Hebrew words that denotes a sinful attitude of disobedience towards God. Isaiah chapter 65 verse 2 says, I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people which walketh in a way that was not good after their own thoughts. You understand the picture here? They've heard the Word of God. But they're doing what they want to do. Paul quotes this verse in Romans chapter 10, verse 21. It says, But to Israel he saith, All day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. And that's the word Peter uses. The context is of people who've heard the word of God. They know what it says. They're not going to do it. 
Likewise, Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 8, But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Do not obey the truth. They've heard the truth. But there's a greater drive for them. It isn't righteousness. It's their darkened hearts. Whether Jew or Gentile, the picture painted for us by by God's Spirit is of someone who has heard the truth of God. Nevertheless, he obstinately resists the truth and continues to live the way he wants. Now, that's what we've got right here. His passions, philosophies of life, and his darkened heart rule him. He will neither believe the doctrine of Christ nor bow to his lordship. He will govern his life. He will be his own captain according to the desires that have a stranglehold on his wicked and deceived heart. There are many dear sisters who are in this condition. As I will point out a little bit more as we unfold this, while the primary context here is Peter addressing all women to submit to their husbands, even if they don't submit themselves to the Word of God, excuse me, even if the husbands do not obey the Word of God, (coughs) we must not miss a vital point. If they obey not the word, clearly here means those who resist God's word as unbelievers. But the principle also speaks to those who claim to be Christ's children and yet will not walk according to the word of God. Some of the women that I've had to sit and listen to cried the hardest were yoked to men They could talk religion. And they could talk about Christ and certain experiences. But in their lives, they ultimately resisted the Word of God. Under their roofs, they would not do what God's Word plainly said. They come and they sit in churches and they hear the Word over and over and over again, but when they go home, they don't live like they're supposed to. And when I say that, I don't necessarily mean they're as profligate as they could be. They're drunkards. They're, they're hooked on Internet porn. Of course, that happens. <clears throat> We're talking about men, though, that simply don't have family worship. When their wives cry out for them to do things, they've got other things to do. They're wrapped up in other matters. 
They're not the prophet, the priest, and the king for their wives, as the Word of God plainly sets out before them. So the primary context, obviously, are those that are lost. But we must bear in mind that there are many who profess to be Christ's whose lives say otherwise. You see, that's vital for, for Peter. That's vital for Peter. Your behavior, your lifestyle. Over and over he hits that note all the way through the epistle. <clears throat> so that brings us to her goal. If this is her problem, here is the goal. That they also may without the word be one. The Christian woman's goal in this case is not to badger her husband with the truth. And that can be done two ways. There are women that come on like a double barrel shotgun. You need to be saved. You're wicked. You're lost. You need to come to church with me. They think that they can kind of beat them into the kingdom. But there are those who with genuine and tender hearts, grieving for the lost condition of their husbands, can't seem to stop saying, repent and believe, repent and believe. And Peter's telling them to suffer. He's saying, in order to win them, you're going to have to preach a different way. <clears throat> the Christian woman cannot impel a husband who's resisting the Word of God into the kingdom of Christ, no matter how much her loving heart desires to. This is a common error. I can't even guess how many times I've had to say to women over the years, well, sister, I think you're going to have to start living in 1 Peter 3. The goal is to win their husbands to the Lord Jesus. And how is this to be done? It is by a life of humble submission to her husband as to the Lord and without a word. Some translate <clears throat> as those who translated the authorized version. If any obey not the word, they also may without the word be one. The definite article is not there in the text. So it can also be translated a word. There are some who would say <clears throat> that that's what Peter is going for. He's going for something of a play on words here. He's saying, Sister, I know what's burning in your heart. But that man that you're living with has heard what you've got to say. He has heard the word. And now, without a word, you need to win him. 
tend to side with those who've done the authorized version, whether it's pointing directly to the scriptures or whether it simply means the wife closing her mouth regarding the scriptures. Either way, the point, of course, is that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But there are certain peculiar circumstances where the hearing has to be a different way, where the Lord shifts the senses and it's not hearing the word as much as it is seeing the word. Now, let me make a footnote here. This is not to be an excuse that some people make who don't want to talk to anybody about the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't want to open their mouth. And so they say, well, you know, I don't talk about my religion. It's just a personal thing to me. I just try to live nicely. That isn't the way Peter talks. It isn't the way Paul talks. It's not the way you find it in the New Testament. But there are times when you can't talk. That's just the way providences are. But Peter says, nevertheless, you can preach a loud sermon. But instead of it being an audio, it's a visual sermon. And we know that the Lord does work that way. Do we not understand when we come to the Lord's table, even without the words, that the broken bread and the taking of the cup speak of something? There's something visible, something visual. And what Peter is saying here is one of the hardest things for a human being, male or female. When your heart is burning with love for Christ, and that fire that burns within goes out to those who don't know Him. One of the hardest things in the life is to be quiet. And that's why Peter says, Hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered. It is suffering for a woman to do what Peter is commanding her to do. And yet, dear brethren, this very suffering is very often blessed of God unto eternal life. Not for her. She already has it. But for the husband who sees her life when she's not talking to him about the things of Christ. <clears throat> there are those who contend that what's going on here is that in the days in which Peter speaks, women were viewed as inferior. As one writer says, dominant among the elite was the notion that the woman was by nature inferior to the man. Now, this is Greek-Roman culture. Because she lacked the capacity for reason, do you like that one? Because she lacked the capacity for reason that the male had, she was ruled rather by her emotions and was a result, and as a result, was given to poor judgment, immorality, intemperance, wickedness, avarice. 
She was untrustworthy, contentious, and as a result, it was her place to obey. Now, I want you to remember, I didn't write that. I didn't say that. That's the culture of that day. Now, there are some then, because this was the thinking of the Greek and Roman culture as a rule, there are those who dive back into that culture and they say, well, we know what, what's going on here. We know what Peter's doing. Peter is not telling women at all times to submit to their husbands. <clears throat> no, he's simply telling women in that culture not to buck the system for the sake of winning their husbands. You see what's going on here? There's a very subtle shift so that this doesn't apply to anybody now. That's how that argument works. Now, it's very important in our study of the Word of God that we understand the cultures in which they were given. We don't want to slingshot 180 degrees on the other side and say, oh, talk about culture is useless and vain. No, it's, it's important for an understanding of things that are going on. But men in their wickedness, men in their fallen condition, without recognizing it sometimes, though many do, twist the Word of God so that what was being applied then doesn't have to be applied now. But this reasoning that Peter sets before us is not that women are substandard, immoral, intemperate, wicked, greedy, untrustworthy, and contentious. While it is possible that in their sinfulness some may be, that's not his argument. And to subtly foist that upon the text, is to twist the meaning. Christianity has never taught that women were that way. <clears throat> Unfortunately, this is the way those with a feminist bent think when they hear the word submission. You're saying that women are this and this and this and this and they're substandard. We're not saying that. We're saying that God has an order, that men are men and women are women, and he's made them different. Peter is not reasoning this way. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul the Apostle reasoned directly from the Holy Scriptures in 1 Timothy <clears throat> chapter 2. He says, For Adam was first formed, then Eve. He doesn't say, Eve was just a mess. She was immoral. She couldn't think. She was ruled by her emotions, and therefore, they can't teach in the church. That's what he was saying. He went right back to the Word of God and said, no, there's an order. God created Adam first, and he's the one that's to be the head. That's all. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. He's not saying men are not ever deceived. Scripture says that all men are deceived. He's talking about the situation at which he's pointing It's always paganism that degrades women, not Christianity. Feminists condemn Christianity 
for degrading women as if somehow or another when we say that a wife should submit that we've taken on the Hellenistic way of life and view of women and that's not true whatsoever. And brother, I hope you understand what I'm striving to, to set before you here. Biblical Christianity exalts women as women created by God in the role that he has ordained as he exalts men in the roles that he's ordained for them. And you will never find a happier person than those who with a humble spirit before God have bowed to his word and walk in the liberty of obedience to Christ. So Peter is not simply speaking to the culture of his day and saying, don't fuck the system, this is the way they think of you, but you're not really that way, and women in other times and places don't ever have to submit to their husbands. That's That's a terrible and wicked thought. He's not saying that. He's speaking to women down through the ages. And it is only when someone views submission in its very essence as something negative, despicable and contemptible, instead of a strength inspired by God's Spirit and honoring to the Lord, that they feel obliged to condemn any notion of submission of of women to men. You have to see the notion of submission as a negative to begin with. And what I'm laboring, I hope not futilely, to say to you that submission is one of the greatest strengths and clearest fruits of the new birth. For women or men, Submission is a strength that speaks of the love of God. Well, we're out of time. Let me simply close with a couple of quick thoughts and we will pick up here again. Let's just think briefly about this holy method. Her holy method. And it says, by the conversation of the wives, while they, the husbands, behold your, the wives, chase conversation coupled with fear. And let me simply say this, and then we'll close. The idea of chaste here means without moral defect, without blemish. And respectful behavior is argued between those who struggle with how to interpret the the Word of God here. Some would say it's fear or reverence to the husband, because Paul speaks of reverencing the husband in Ephesians 5. Others say that when Peter uses the word reverence, it's almost always vertical, not horizontal. It always means reverence for God. And I think that's more likely what's being pointed to here. Not simply that you reverence your husband, which if you reverence God, you will, but the fact that what he's seeing in you is a chaste lifestyle, a pure 
a holy, a righteous, a submissive, a gracious lifestyle motivated by a holy reverence for God in heaven. Peter's saying sometimes the Lord reaches into those wicked hard hearts, breaks them, pierces them, and brings a lost husband to see. But that woman couldn't be that way. Except there was some God doing something incredible in her, to her, by her, through her. And of course she will say, it's Jesus Christ. He has washed me from my sins and I love Him. And so everything I do, I do out of reverence for Him. But even if it means reverence for her husband, where does that come from? A holy reverence for God. So again, it's not something you want to spend a lot of time arguing over. Either way, the glory is to Jesus Christ who saves and changes His people. So brethren, and especially sisters, we're called to a glorious walk with Christ, in Christ, like Christ, which will entail taking up the cross and following after Him. And it will entail suffering Because we will all, you sisters of course, but all of the Lord's children, at some time in some way will have to submit to an authority that's very difficult to do. And rather than that speaking in some way of you being an inferior being, it speaks of the supernatural strength of regenerating grace in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom be all the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Blessed Father, Thou art so good to us. Oh, we cannot praise and thank Thee enough. Lord, I pray for each of these sisters. Would You bless and encourage them and strengthen them. And no doubt, Father, even in living with regenerate husbands, there are times when they sin, when in lack, in sins of of, uh, omission, we cause our dear wives to suffer. Lord, I pray that you would grant every woman in here a burning heart in those difficult times, to live a glorious visual sermon that reproves and rebukes. An insensitive husband. O Lord, may all that we do bring Thee glory and exalt the salvation that we have in Thee. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. 
our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.